five, four, three, two, one. Paddington. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Now Showing podcast. I'm your host, as always, Sam Houston, and I'm joined in person by my wonderful co-host, Lewis. Hello, we're actually in person. This is a big first. For yes, the this is the first time in, in this iteration of the podcast that we've ever done uh, a recording in person. But you've been down in London this week um, yeah. to, to watch some films and, and, and do some shit. And then we, we've been hanging out and, uh, and we're doing a recording here. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at, well, namely, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which came out last week. Uh, of course, everyone probably heard of it already, but Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage um, in a in an action comedy adventure with Pedro Pascal. And we're also going to be having a review of Benedetta from uh, from you, Lewis. I, I haven't seen it, um, but the new Paul Verhoeven film um, about lesbian nuns, I believe that's the, the premise. The vague premise, yeah, that's the... That's a vague description, but yeah, it's right. And and we've um, we've both seen quite a lot um, of, of kind of films in the week. So our what we watch question of what we watch section will be a bit longer, especially because we've shared you know experience of the film. So uh, yeah, I'll be, this is a bit of an experiment really. We're seeing how this works because we've never done something uh, in person before, so we don't know if it's going to be a bit more conversational. Perhaps I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, but we'll uh, we're giving this a go today. So um, you know, also apologies if the audio isn't necessarily a hundred percent. Uh, to the usual standards because of course uh, it's, it's obviously a very different situation to usual so uh let's cut the shit shall we and get straight into it with uh some discussion about what we've watched so but we obviously have seen quite a lot together over the last few days um but i want to ask uh if there's anything that you've seen before you you were we were together so what have you watched on your own over the last week uh, well, the only thing that I've watched on my own since the last time we recorded is uh, last time we recorded and we did what we watched. I mentioned that the James Bond marathon is going. Well, it's not really a marathon, but the James Bond, all the James Bond films are being released at uh, Odeon and View and several other cinemas throughout the year. And I watched Doctor No last week, and I watched From Russia with Love this week, which is the second one that they ever made with Sean Connery. And um, I kind of feel the same way about From Russia With Love. It's really, it's camp, it's charming, it's funny. Um, they're still finding their feet. The next one is Goldfinger. That's the one where they really find their feet. Um, but From Russia With Love is such a, it's still very experimental. It's very, very 1960s. Um, and Sean Connery is a great James Bond. And um, I loved it and it was great watching it. I watched this one on my own. I didn't watch this one with my dad like I watched Doctor No. Um, but yeah, I loved From Russia With Love. And that is the only thing that I've seen since the last time we recorded uh, that didn't involve you. Yeah, I- I've watched two things myself. So, uh, you know, it's not not like an amazing amount. Um, uh, the first thing I watched were, was a rewatch. Uh, I rewatched... Basically, I, you know, I-, I feel like over the last week, a lot of the things I've watched, even well, on my own and with you... Um, I really feel like I'm a like peak level cinephile at this point. I'm trying. I'm absolutely like hitting the the high note with the the most like nerdy uh, like you know say like cinephile typical things. And and I don't think I ever felt like more of a, a chin stroking film nerd than I did listening to the the uh, audio commentary on uh, 1927's Metropolis, the the Fritz Lang uh, expressionist film. Um, the David Callas and and Joseph. I think Joseph. Rosenbaum, I think is his name, uh, the two people that did the commentary. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're into silent films and, you know, like I am, um, you know, it's great. Check it out. It's on the um, Eureka Master Cinema release, which came out after the uh, they found the the rest of Metropolis that was lost in 2010. Um, and yeah, it's very interesting. I think watching uh, commentaries over silent films is particularly interesting because it's not like you're competing with the dialogue. It's not like they're waiting. You know, it's a, It's more... Um, I find that it's less reacting to specific events and more of a kind of general, almost like a podcast actually. Uh, shout out the Now Shame podcast. Um, so, so uh, yeah, yeah. So that was good. Other than that, I watched David Lynch's Eraserhead. Uh, so my knowledge of David Lynch is a bit lacking. Um, the only David Lynch things I've seen uh, prior to, to Eraserhead was uh, the the Elephant Man, which came out in in, in nineteen eighty. So I think that was just after what well, I think his second project after. Uh, raise ahead and and of course that's a bit dialed down it's a bit more hollywood friendly even if it does have a style and i always talk about how much i like the fact that you know he's decided to go for you know what if they made this story in the 30s or whatever that's how how elephant man feels rather than just you know a direct adaptation of the life of joseph merrick 
Um, it's, it isn't as absurd as usual. I've also seen What Did Jack Do, which is the short film on Netflix, which is hilarious and great, but, you know, again, it, it's maybe not his more critically acclaimed work. So I thought I'd start at the beginning and, and, and give a raise ahead a go. And I, I thought it was just magnificent. Um, it's uh, obviously, I think everyone knows, it certainly isn't for everyone. You can bring what you like to it. Uh, but I thought it was just wonderful. I have my own personal interpretation of what, what happens, whether that matters or not is, uh, I guess, to varying levels of importance, depending on your own thoughts on it. But it kind of, uh, it is kind of the things where when the film finished, I kind of thought, how can I ever watch another film again? How can I ever watch a normal film again? It almost kind of felt so much bigger than media. You know, this this felt like a, a transformative piece of media for myself. Uh, and, and I think it is kind of one of the most breathtaking things I've seen in a long time. So for me, I think, um, you know, I'd say, I think it's, it's probably one of the best things I've ever seen, actually. Um, so so I, I think, again, a lot of people might, might and I know do, think it's absurdist and stupid and pretentious. But for me, I think it hit... Uh, almost every single note. So I, 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 uh, I've used that music analogy twice now, uh, but I think it's absolutely excellent. So you know, not surprised to be praising you know David Lynch or anything. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely excellent. I have just realised that I've lied. I have seen two other things as well that I've remembered. I rewatched Spencer uh, for the first time since like near uh, the beginning of the year, and t as usual, every other time that I've seen it, it was perfect. And I was just again completely in awe of Kristen Stewart's performance. And uh, I can't urge people to watch it more uh, because it's just amazing. I told my mum to watch it and uh, my mum watched it and my mum loved it as well. My mum loved Kristen Stewart's performance as well. Um, and it is perfect. And the other thing that I watched is I finally got around to watching Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is one of the most acclaimed films of all time. Um, it's allegedly the best film about film. It's about um, a director with like writer's block, creative block. As a mank enjoyer, I, uh, I disagree with that statement. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's about a, a filmmaker with like creative block and he's, you know, trying to figure out what to do with the, this film that he needs to make and everyone around him is constantly asking him questions. And it's just, it's a technical marvel to watch. I mean, it, it genuinely is flawless. And it's about um, not really knowing why you, where you're going or what you're doing with something creative. Um, but also it kind of, that metaphor extends to just life in general, not knowing where you're going next in life. And it feels really, really great. It's got great performances in it and it's just an absolute masterpiece. And it did not disappoint. It's one of those classic films where you hear of its reputation and you watch it and it doesn't, it lives up to its reputation. It really is one of the best films ever made. And, and it's certainly the best film about film that I've seen. Um, Mank is a close second, probably. So you're you're already well. I'm just saying that sounds like a spoiler because Unbearable Weight of Mass Talent is a kind of about film. That in a lot of ways. True, yeah. So <laughs> there's the you can make the thematic connection between that and today's. I will I will say as a spoiler that I do think that um, Eight and a Half is better than Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Uh, that's actually kind of against podcast rules there, but you know we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll see it. Um, so uh, I just before we. we talk about all the films we've seen together. Um, I just want to go take a second to to thank everyone, really, because over the last week, we've had the best week of of podcasting um, that the, the podcast has ever had by a considerable margin. Uh, our last two episodes, uh, The Godfather Trilogy and The Northman, are one and two in our most listened episodes of all time. Uh, we had the, mo the best week for listens ever. Uh, and, you know, I don't expect that to be continuing. I don't expect that growth to be to every episode. I don't expect this episode to get... You know, ridiculous number of listens or anything. Um, but I just want to give a real big thanks to everyone that has been listening over the last few weeks. We don't exactly know why, um, <laughs> but for whatever reason, um, more people have recently decided to listen to us, and we really are thankful. And it really gives us, a, you know, a big boost to, to wanting to keep on doing this. Um, so a big thank you to everyone. Um, just you know, appreciate it, guys. Yeah, it's great. It was. Uh, it's really nice to see an episode like The Godfather. Which is a talking us talking about old films that we love, and an episode about the Northman, which is a modern film that we love. Both do really, really well uh, in the space of two weeks. It's been insane. We've been messaging each other throughout the past couple of weeks, saying like the Northman's moved up a place again. It's now our fourth most listened to, and then third, and then second, and now it's the the top episode. So thank you for 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 listening to us drone on about films all the time. Yeah, and uh, and dethrone Spider Man No Way Home. So um, yeah, so yeah, that's 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 kind of us contributing to the wider film narrative with uh, knocking <laughs> off a Marvel film. Yeah, Robert Eggers is now a bigger director <laughs> than No Way Home. If only that and, was reflected in the box office. And John Watts. Yeah, uh, that's it. That's one then. Yeah. <laughs> so we we've uh, seen five things together uh, while you've been here. Um, yeah. So we've seen 
two things in the British Film Institute, uh, the BFI South Bank, and we've seen two things in the Prince Charles Cinema, which are for my money, and you know, I guess I have, you know, I do live here, uh, but for my money, uh, the two best cinemas in London, uh, especially because, as I said before, if you're in, if you're under 25. And, and you live near London or in London, go out and get the 25 and under membership on DFI because you can get £3 tickets or anything, guys. Guys, check it out. Um, but we, the first thing we watched was at the Prince Charles uh, yesterday, and that was, um, not yesterday, but it was Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. Now, uh, nine, well, you'd seen uh, an Agnes Varda film, um, Clear from 5 to 7? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't ever seen a, a, any French New Wave at all. So this was an introduction um, for me to the genre. And I was a little bit worried because I, I was vaguely aware of the conventions uh, and, and I kind of understood the general thesis of, of kind of why this movement came out. But I was kind of unaware of the details uh, and I wasn't exactly sure how I'd feel about it. Um, but I, I don't know about you. I do know about you to a degree, but I was really, really pleased i thought breakfast was was a, a very thoroughly enjoyable watch um regardless uh, you know of its place in cinematic history i think that it's a uh, a very witty interesting you know at times emotional uh tense you know and and i say it's breathless you know the, the the editing style of course is very very strong and in almost every single pause uh, anything that isn't directly related to the plot is, is cut out. You know, any breath between words, any any walk down the street, anything that isn't completely thing is cut out. And you know, for a sort of, you know jarring and and um, kind of brave editing style, you know, it really does make you. It does feel breathless. Everything feels so much more on edge because of that. And and you know, of course, that must have blown heads in nineteen sixty. But I still think it does to a degree now. Um, but yeah, I was a big fan. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. Um, we were speaking. We speak all the time about watching old films, and we always say there are films that you watch that are old that you don't necessarily enjoy, but you can appreciate them. And I thought that's how I'd feel about Breathless. Um, I thought I'd just kind of appreciate watching it and think, yeah, I can recognise that that's important, but I didn't enjoy it, um, or I wouldn't enjoy it, but I really did enjoy it. It's uh, it's very witty, very funny, like you said, um, and the editing is bizarre and where I came out of it and I, I in a way I still haven't decided whether or not I hated the editing because it is a very very strong creative decision to cut out anything that doesn't move the plot forward like you know it's not an exaggeration to say you know pausing between sentences that's cut out um it's a really strange editing choice and I still haven't decided whether or not I loved it or hated the editing um but regardless of that as a whole I thought it was a really fantastic film um you know there are several scenes about um this couple um falling in love and deciding whether or not they're in love um, particularly the woman is constantly saying I don't know if I'm in love with you yet um and I just thought it was a really beautifully written film uh, the cinematography was gorgeous um and it it just felt so thoroughly modern and fantastic and kind of encompasses everything that i've uh, read about french new wave because I, I have seen from cleo from five to seven um but that's it i think um so to see another one and to have that again live up to the expectations and and see something um that i thoroughly enjoyed and you know thought was fantastic uh, it was really great to see and it was even better to see it in the cinema um to see a film like that in the cinema is is just a, a great experience yeah and and the second thing we saw um slightly more well much much more obscure um i mean we're talking about one of the most you know important films of all time in breathless um but we went to go see the miracle woman uh, at the bfi uh, as part of their faith season um, which, and, and everybody's quite rightly going, what is the miracle woman? Um, <laughs> it's a 1931 Frank Capra film, the director of uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Miss Smith Goes to Washington uh, and more. Um, but it's not one of his well-known films. You know, it's, it's a film that comes 10 years before, you know, his best, best known, you know, 10, 15 years before his more, more known works. Um, but features the story of uh, a, a kind of early evangelist, um, a, a a Christian uh, kind of public speaker who exploits um, kind of fake religion, fake miracles to try and, you know, earn money for her kind of abusive um, and, and controlling business partner slash kind of predatory kind of partner. Um, but while she does this, 
uh, you know, she, she finds love with a local blind man who has been blessed by her real life miracles. Um, now again, we had absolutely zero expectation because no one, yeah. uh, you know, we hadn't heard of it obviously because we, who, you know, how much of a, of a cinephile would we have to be <laughs> to have heard of it? Um, but we were both pretty much blown away, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I said this yesterday, um, but I had a high expectations for Breathless because uh, I knew about it. It has a big reputation. I knew nothing about this. I'd never even heard of it until we booked the tickets. And um, I don't know whether that impacted it, but I I enjoyed uh, The Miracle Woman more than Breathless even, which is saying something. Um, I, I mean, it, it was really funny. It was fantastically acted. Uh, I think she's called Barbara Stanwyck. Um, yeah, yeah, she's the 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 female lead, and she's fantastic in this. She really captures the kind of um, at the start uh, this devout Christian who kind of descends into um, like con work, um, and it, it's just it's a really lovely plot, a really beautiful plot, and um, I re- I genuinely I loved it so much. I can't think of anything wrong with it. Really, it's a ten out of ten in my head because wow, I, I can't think of anything to dislike about it. I, I loved it. The cinematography is gorgeous. One of the words that you use to describe it is charming and it really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's a lovely film. And similarly, um, I, I want to, I'm intrigued to go back and watch more Frank Capra films. Cause I've only seen it's a wonderful life. And, um, you know, it's a wonderful life and the miracle woman both deal with a man who's about to kill himself and is saved at the last minute by someone. Um, who kind of shows him the meaning of life and shows him that it's a wonderful life. Uh, and the same thing happens in The Miracle Woman as it's a wonderful life, albeit in incredibly different ways. Um, and I'm intrigued to go back and see if that's something that runs through all of his films, uh, although not perhaps not explicitly. Um, but uh, I'm very intrigued to go back and watch more Frank Capra because I, I love It's a Wonderful Life and I really loved It's a Miracle Woman a lot. I was very surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Very funny as well for a film from the 1930s. Yeah, intentionally or not. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I agree. I think it's charming. I think, you know, it's, it's you know, obviously he has something that he's interested in, in trying to find the goodness in, in everyday life, the goodness in people. Um, but I don't know how much it's worth us even talking in a way because I don't know how he... I don't think this is going to be an easy film to find for... Uh, any listeners out there, um, but if you can find this at the BFI shows again, uh, if you can find it, you know, a dodgy website or something, I would very much recommend going out there, uh, going away because it is wonderful and it is very timely. I think there's something that's so nice, so uh, kind of warmth. There's a, a, a kind of co- a coziness to uh, so that re- those really early '30s pre-code films that um, you know I, I was enjoying. I think as well in throughout the '40s, really. But I think uh, there's a there's a kind of uh, an innocence to them. I think uh, that, that is uh, still resonates today. So next up, um, <laughs> next up, we we we. I just thought we'd we'd mention this that we 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 rewatched the the room, the the two thousand and three Tommy Wiseau classic. <laughs> now um, we came into this with different levels of knowledge upon the room, mm. right? So you'd seen the room once years ago, yeah. Didn't really remember what happened. Didn't really know a lot of the like behind the scenes details. Mm. I come into this uh, as an absolute obsessive room nerd. I absolutely <laughs> love this film. I am part of the proud, proud member of the cult of Wiseau, um, and and uh, yeah, it's, it's just it's the best worst film ever. You know, I think it's been said a million times, but you know, it's the best worst film ever. It's unbelievably badly made, um, but to a level that is still watchable um, and is just so hilarious because of the absurdity of it and and it's just oh i mean of course everyone's seen the room i guess but um yeah it's wonderful i i'd love to love it yeah it is baffling i i seen it once but my memory was very vague of it um but yeah it's what it's it's you, there are so many films that i'd say are bad but they're competently made the room is not even competently made the cinematography is awful the acting is awful. Everything about it is so dreadful, and yet it's so captivating that you just can't look away. It's it's lit. It's lightning in a bottle. I don't know how they did it, and you could never replicate that kind of film where it's awful on every level, and yet it's absolutely, completely, um, what's the word? Enthralling to sit through and to watch. I mean, it, it it's so impressive that they managed to do that. Um, yeah, exactly. And even with a film that's so poor, you still managed to break probably the most hateable and the worst <laughs> character in history in uh, in Lisa. Um, probably the, the most uh, kind of 
unsavably bad human being in the history of cinema. So uh, I think that deserves a little bit of credit for my man, Tommy. So um, moving on, we we watched uh, Spirited Away in, in the BFI as part of the anime season. Uh, neither of us had seen it. Um, I, I remember vaguely memories of it as a child, a very young child. When I grew up, uh, you know, there were always Studio Ghibli or Ghibli films on television. And I remember kind of jumping in and out of things like The Cat Returns and How I Was Moving Castle. But I don't remember sitting down and watching them start to finish. Uh, and I didn't really have like, so I couldn't really confidently say that I have watched a Studio Ghibli or, or Ghibli. I'm not exactly sure what it's pronounced, but a Studio Ghibli film. And then we went down and sat through one of the, the most, well, the most critically acclaimed of their films um, and the most critically acclaimed animated film of all time. Uh, and if you're going off letterbox ratings, the most critically acclaimed film of the twi- of the 2000s. Um, so, I mean, I, I think we we both agreed on on you know the, the quality of it, but we maybe didn't agree necessarily on how much we personally enjoyed it. Um, I myself thought it was an absolute masterpiece. Uh, and I think all the praise that it gets is is fully deserved. I think it's absolutely beautiful. I think that the the quirky characters are are, are a pleasure to be with, and I think that you know the the, the deep running story uh, is emotional and and real and and warming and heartbreaking. And I just think it's just a, a kind of perfect modern fairy tale. Yeah, I mean, I, we definitely agree on the the uh, the technical side of it because this is a. An absolute masterpiece. One of the greatest looking animated films ever. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, it just didn't click with me as much. Um, I did enjoy it a lot more than I expected to. Um, because like you, I didn't have any experience with Studio Ghibli or Ghibli. Um, but I, so I kind of thought that I'd enjoy it a little bit. Um, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. A lot more than I expected to. And I definitely appreciate that it is unbelievably well done. Um, on every level uh, it just didn't click with me and I didn't love it um, you know I don't think I'd watch it again um, but you know I can definitely appreciate it deserves all the credit that it gets because it is fantastic I think I thought of it to me Spirit Away um, was a bit like uh, you know if I was I wouldn't compare it to to a Pixar film mm. or to a Disney film but I'd compare it to I say like modern fairy tales you know I'd compare it to something like uh, the Wizard of Oz or Mary Poppins, um, something of, of that ilk, you know, that, that in the way that we are introduced to all these little characters, their own little uh, objectives and motives, their own d- different reasons. Um, Alice in Wonderland is one that I definitely bring a, a strong mm-hmm. comparison to and, and how the world doesn't, much like Alice in Wonderland and uh, I suppose it was that the world doesn't have any defined uh, kind of barriers and obstacles and rules it, you know you don't have any kind of reason to think oh well this can't happen that is that's abnormal you know in a Pixar film which isn't this is an insult of course this is just the barriers that they work with you know Pixar film everything feel was very much within the first image you understand the limitations and, and extents of what happens in that universe in this universe cars talk in this universe insects talk whatever and they have their kind of defined you know this is what this film's gimmick is whereas in in something like spirit away much like that's in wonderland or you know also was the was or something you just have to kind of take it as it comes and i and i think having these little individual stories that can go any way it's just a pleasure you know i think you know it's it, it, you know as i said it, england has mary poppins and america has you know wizard of oz and i think that you know japan's you know modern version of those things is spirit away i thought it was just wonderful and, and it you know, one of the best things I've seen in a long time, along with A Razorhead, of course. Um, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I'm definitely grateful that I got to see it in the cinema, though, because it is uh, one thing that I don't think anyone could deny about it is that it's one of the most breathtakingly animated films ever. It's absolutely stunning. Um, next up, we kind of have the reverse, um, because I have kind of the same opinions that you have towards um, yeah. this film as you did towards Spirit Away, uh, which is the 1974 Francis Ford Coppola film, uh, The Conversation, starring Gene Hackman, John Cazale, uh, a young Harrison Ford, uh, and others. Um, and this is the film produced between The Godfathers by, by Coppola, um, talked about and discussed in, uh, at length uh, by Hugh Grant in the uh, 2019 film <laughs> The Gentleman. Um, and yeah, it's the story of a, a wiretapper, a uh, surveillance man, 
who becomes personally enthralled in the subjects of his own tapes. He's recording tapes for a client and he starts to become concerned about how these tapes may be used um, in relation to the lives of the two people he's been recording the conversation of. Uh, Harry Cool, uh, by Gene, uh, Gene Hackman. Uh, and it's a very, you know, he's a very private man. He's a very cold man. Uh, and he's a, a very uh, kind of introspective and, and, and um, what's the word, kind of thinky character. Um, and I thought it was wonderfully well made. I mean, just like tr- truly, you know, it looked beautiful. We saw it in 35mm, which is incredible, you know, which makes it even better, uh, Prince Charles. Um, I think it's incredibly well made. I think it's very, really, incredibly well acted. And I enjoyed the general concept. But for me, I felt like uh, the fact that the film kind of was so cold and the character was so cold that I felt that there were moments that where patience kind of turned into into a tedium and I did find myself bored at times. And I did find myself ahead of the plot on a, a number of things where I'm thinking I'm just waiting for what I know is going to happen to happen. Uh, the ending is, is wonderful. There are some really interesting things that happen towards the end that I think really did kick this film up a notch. Uh, I understand why it's considered uh, so good by the fans of Coppola. Um, but for me, you know, I found it enjoyable, uh, incredibly well made, but I, I did not love it. I can, cl- I can clearly say I did not love it. Yeah, and I feel <clears throat> completely the opposite way um, about personal feelings towards it. it is, technically, it's flawless. I mean, it's Coppola did it between the Godfathers, so it's just as good on a technical level as those, in my opinion. Um, and I did absolutely love it. I mean, uh, the opening of this film is just its a conversation uh, being recorded. And I found it enthralling. I was never bored. I was hooked in from like the first five minutes and I didn't want it to end. Um, I thought it was fantastic. The only way that I've just said I didn't want it to end because the only thing I changed about it was that I I wish it had ended five minutes earlier. Um, The ending is a great scene, but I think uh, the film as a whole would have worked better if it ended uh, five minutes earlier. But I am still grateful that we got that last scene because it's great. Gene Hackman is um, a, you know, an amazing performance. Um, and I said this to you yesterday, I don't feel like he gets enough credit as, you know, when people talk about the greatest actors of all time, nobody mentions Gene Hackman. Um, and I don't know why, because he is amazing. And, and this is, again, just another one of his many incredible performances. Um, and I think the screenplay is fantastic. The editing is amazing in this. The editing is one of the best. It's one of the best edited films I've seen. The sound design as well is fantastic for to say, especially considering it's from nineteen seventy four. Uh, the sound design feels so modern and so two thousands in a way. And um, I just really thoroughly loved it. And I, you know, seeing it in the cinema on thirty five millimeter was amazing. Um, and I just, yeah, I loved it. And I, I'm very excited to go back and watch more uh, Coppola films from that era because. Um, I mean, he did Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather Part 2, and he knocked them out in like three years as though it was nothing. So, um, yeah, I mean, very, very impressed. And a great four films that we saw in the cinema. Yeah, yeah, very much so. There was no weak link, even if we had kind of slightly different personal opinions on, on Spirit Away and, and The Conversation. Um, we both appreciate the other person's point of view. It wasn't like we came out of there uh, kicking and screaming like we'd have in, in you know previous seasons, things like House of Gucci or whatever, where we yeah. so strongly disagree. Um Let's see if we do for uh, for our films tonight. Uh, well, film today. Okay, so uh, that is what we've watched. Um, There's been quite a lot in quite a short amount of time. Uh, now we're, we're going to talk about the news. And the news has been dominated over the last week um, by CinemaCon, um, which I hadn't heard of prior to the to, to today. Yeah, no, this, this week. Um, uh, I don't know if this is a mainstay of the cinema calendar, but I, I haven't remembering it being talked about before. Maybe that's because of COVID. Um, but a lot of things have been announced. There's, there is far, far too much that, for us to talk about. I'm sure we will forget to mention what something that's particularly big. Uh, but some of the big takeaways include a, an announced sequel to The Batman, which seemed pretty much inevitable anyway. But, you know, it's good to have it on uh, that, that, that officially announced. Yeah. Uh, aside from that, um, we first got the first images of Greta Gerwig's Barbie starring Margot Robbie, which, you know, I'm having to kind of put up with everybody being so excited for. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm trying to kind of match that because I would, wouldn't like to, to judge a book um, on its cover. But, you know, I had some slight issues. I don't know if I've ever mentioned it, but I've had some slight <laughs> issues with Greta Gerwig's last picture. Um, so 
I, but you know, I am willing to give it a go, uh, and I'm willing to try and go to it with an open mind, uh, even if that might not seem super easy. Um, aside from that, we got a lot of information about Avatar and the Avatar, Avatar Two, and the Avatar franchise in general. We've received production stills. Uh, a, a trailer has been shown to people there. We've had sequel titles, and we've had a general a high amount of information about the series. Um, firstly, uh, the, the, the sequel, this, well, the, the next one's called The Way of the Water. So, um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, we'll go into the, de the details in just a second, but in general, how are you feeling about the, the Avatar franchise? How, you know, th this is obviously, it's been, 2009 was the last time it came out, you know, I was only eight years old when the film came out, and now I'm, you know, t coming, I'm going to be like 22 when the next one does, um, or around that age. You know, it's, it's a big, big gap, but, you know, do you think that that because it's Avatar, people will, will care, or do you think it will take a while for people to start listening again? Do you think it'll take to maybe Avatar six before people start noticing? Uh, no, I think it's going to be huge. I, I I've been saying this for a while. I think people are underestimating James Cameron. He is, um, you know, he's one of the best directors of all time. He's made some of the biggest films of all time. Some of the most, you know, regardless of what you think of them personally, they are some of the most influential films. Terminator, Terminator Two, Titanic, and Avatar as well. Regardless of what you think of Avatar as a film, it changed the way that we make films in terms of how much uh, CGI it used. I mean, if it wasn't for Avatar, Thanos wouldn't be a thing in Avengers: uh, Infinity War and Endgame. Um, and I think he's also. Kind of the guy, uh, you know, Terminator 2 is, uh, you know, according to everyone, well, not literally everyone, but it's commonly, it's common opinion to have Terminator 2 is far better than Terminator 1 and Terminator 1 blew everyone's minds. So I think Avatar 2 is going to be better than Avatar 1 and I think it's going to blow everyone's minds. Um, I don't know if it's going to do the same box office numbers as Avatar 1. Um, we'll see, like, when the trailer comes out, but also the world still isn't fully over COVID, so I don't know if it can do that. Um, but yeah, it's going to be huge and I think I'm very excited for it. I've been an Avatar fan. You know, it's, it's a very overdone plot. It's not not an original plot, um, but I think it's done extremely well. Um, so I'm I'm very excited for Avatar two, and I can't wait to see the uh, the trailer with Doctor Strange next week. Now everyone's talking about the fact that it's called Avatar: The Way of the Water, but I currently have it up an article from February two thousand nineteen that has all five of the sequels listed. So I think this is actually information that had been out there, but was kind of generally forgotten more than yeah. anything. Um, so the five sequel titles, or well, the four sequel titles, so. The, the four films that, that are coming out are called Avatar The Way of the Water The Way of Water sorry Avatar The Way of Water Avatar The Seed Bearer Avatar The Tolkien Rider and Avatar The Quest for Awa E-Y-W-A um, and I think the idea is that these are going to be individual standalone films that contribute to a wider narrative rather than traditional sequels. Now, I mean, I am so tired of the concept of cinematic universes at this point, <laughs> but I also quite do appreciate the fact that people don't have a kind of personal uh, attachment to the characters and world of Pandora uh, that came in the first film. So I think the idea that we're breaking away into a new territory is a good one. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for for where, for where this can go, and and I hope that you know each of those individual films has their own vibe and their own emotion. But yeah, I think that if anything, the problem with the first one was that it kind of had nothing to to attach itself to, and I think that's the big you know thing that it needs to overcome to make these sequels anywhere near as good as as the first film. Yeah, and I I also think <clears throat> I also think one thing about Avatar um, that not enough people like understand really is just how advanced it was i mean it came out in 2009 and i watched it only recently in 4k not in 4k um i watched it only recently and um it's it's it holds up it more than holds up i mean you watch avatar and you see these completely digital environments completely digital characters and fully live action characters and live action objects all interacting flawlessly and the cgi completely holds up and i think you watch things like avatar where you've got completely digital characters and compare it to things like endgame where you've got thanos a completely digital character and i'd say they're about the same in quality which is insane um so really avatar was about a decade ahead of its time in terms of technology which means if the second one is the same then we're not going to see anything like avatar 2 until like 2030 2032 um, which is an insane thing to think. I mean, they re released some official stills this morning um, and we had a quick look at them and th they look unbelievable. It, they they don't look like CGI characters. They look real. They look tangible. And I cannot wait to see them 
uh, on the big screen, even if it is just to appreciate how good the the uh, the VFX are. Um, I don't care. I'm just incredibly excited to see it, and it's also kind of making bringing IMAX 3D back because um, you know Doctor Strange is screening in IMAX 3D more than IMAX 2D, and um, Avatar One kicked off an obsession with 3D. Um, maybe Avatar Two will kick off a new ex- uh, obsession with IMAX 3D again. Yeah. Um, moving on to the other stuff at Cinema Cinema Con, there is so much to talk about. There's no way we'll get around to all of it. Uh, but some of the stuff that maybe uh, is worth mentioning includes um, the fact that we had more footage from Lightyear. Uh, we had more talk about uh, the upcoming Willy Wonka uh, prequel. Um, there's now been announced sequels for both Venom and Ghostbusters Afterlife, or you know where the Ghostbusters series is going on. Um, neither of us are big fans of Venom 2. Uh, I personally am a fan of Venom 1, however. Um, but you know, I'd like to see if they can try and, and find a film that is particularly a bit more loved than the first two, because I think there is a lot of uh, kind of potential there you know Tom Hardy obviously a very good casting for the character he's a very beloved comedy character um, but I don't know if it's necessarily paid off so far uh, and with Ghostbusters Afterlife you know I thought it was a fun film I enjoyed it a lot and uh, I know I, I think there's a lot to to do with those characters that new generation um, so there's that alongside that uh, the, today we've also had uh, confirmation of uh, the the Quiet Place spin-off being called uh, Quiet Place Day One so I think that's going to be slightly more in the vein of, I mean, I imagine based on the title, you imagine it'll be obviously very early on, the, the beginning of it, uh, of the the event. And I imagine that'll probably be more of the same vibes as something like Cloverfield, you know, a bit more of a traditional disaster movie than than maybe the, the kind of tense horror that we got in the Quiet Place films. Uh, but I think it's pretty interesting, directed by Marcus Sarnowski, who obviously did Pig recently. Um, and there's just too much to talk about, I think. But uh, I'll, um, I'll leave it off by saying that the, the headline that came out this week, Kevin Feige planned a, a retreat, a creative re- was it a creative retreat and planned Marvel's next 10 years. Um, so doesn't this kind of give you a little bit of a, those Jared Leto uh, mid-lockdown um, long desert retreat vibes? Yeah, it's, it's very weird um, when people do things like this. Um, but, you know, I'm happy that they've got a plan. I'm happy that they're sorting out a plan. So uh, good for them, I guess. Okay, nice. Uh, I'm sure we've forgotten something really, really big. We have just quickly to say this week. This week, two massive blockbusters have lost their directors. Fast Ten, um, the director yeah. of that, has dropped out after a week of shooting, and John Watts has left Fantastic Four. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Of course, those those that is that is true. Um, I of course have more of an experience with the Fast franchise than yes. you, unfortunately. Uh, having binged all, all nine for the podcast last year, famously sat for about 400 hours of VIN <laughs> just for a five-minute section of the podcast. Um, but, yeah, I, I personally, uh, you know, I think, you know, Justin Lin is, is kind of a bit like um, David Yates for, for Harry Potter. He, you don't feel his his direct, his his stamp particularly strongly, and maybe that's a controversial opinion amongst people that are big fans of the franchise, but I don't necessarily feel a stamp on it, but I think... He knows the the vibe of what these films should be like, and and he can produce that consistently to a to a, to a decent level. Um, and I think you know do it. You know he doesn't control the quality of writing, but you know he, to a better or worse degree, he manages to kind of put out the same the same product regardless of what kind of content he gets. I think the same so David Yates. You know when he gave got the script for for the second uh, Deffy Hallows, he managed to create a thing that I consider like pretty much a masterpiece. Whereas something like Fantastic Beasts two. Not so good. Uh, I think Justin Lin was quite a comparative director in that, you know, Fury, you know, some of his, his uh, earlier Fast and Furious films were, were some of the stronger ones. Um, but then, you know, Fast 9 was, was pretty crap. Um, I don't know who's going to direct from here. Uh, a lot of people talk about um, F. Uh, Gary Gray. Um, so uh, that's an interesting one. I don't know who, who, we, who we definitely will get. Um, but you know, at this point, I think just cut the middleman and uh, and make it Vin because it's so much of an ego project for Vin Diesel at this point that um, I think you could just like he's basically directing the films anyway. So just you know, give him a a, a, a you know one of those uh, black chairs, those uh those weird crossover chairs that directors get, and then uh, kind of call the whole thing off. Um, but Fantastic Four, I think, is so early in production that I don't think it necessarily makes much difference. Whereas it's a yeah. bit more of um. You know, this this fast version news came out one week into filming, so there must have been like a problem. I wonder which bald man could have had the problem with the with the director, but um yeah, so that's it. Um 
Yeah, I mean, there's, there's loads of like small news. That, I mean, we can talk about you know, there's new trailers come up for Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, you know, there's been talk about uh, the new John Wick film. I mean, there's been loads of little pieces of news. Um, but I think we'll leave it there for now. Okay, so it's time to move on to our feature presentations of the evening. And that will be uh, two reviews, one of Benedetta uh, from Lewis and one of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent from the both of us. So I haven't seen Benedetta purely because of, of scheduling issues. I've not been able to fit it in because it kind of basically left cinemas at the start of this week. Uh, so I wasn't able to fit it in. But you did see it. Uh, it didn't seem like it's not a traditionally Lewis film, really. So um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Benedetta. Um, but can you give us a description of what Benedetta is? Um, and, and whether, you know, I should go out of my way to try and pick it up on physical media when it comes out or, or now TV or whatever, Shh, you know, tell me about Benedetta. Yeah, well, I did see it quite a while ago. So if I, uh, if I do say something that is wrong, forgive me, my memory may fail me. Um, but Benedetta is Paul Verhoeven's new film. It's based on a true story about Sister Benedetta, who, who was a French nun. And um, she was, she had, uh, you know, this thing that nuns get a stigmata. Uh, I don't know if you know what that is. Um, I do not. It's, uh, I don't really know how to describe it. It's when you kind of get a message from Jesus that says you are special and I'm like using you as a spokesperson. Um, and you get kind of cuts on your hand where Jesus had the nails put in his hand and your head starts to bleed where the crown of thorns or whatever it was called was put on Jesus's head. And uh, Sister Benedetta had her stigmata and became like the leader of this uh, coven of nuns and or convent or whatever the word is. Um, and she was accused of faking her stigmata by cutting herself with glass. Um, it's un well, we, we don't know if she faked it, but um, uh, that's what that is. And she was also a lesbian and um, she kind of befriended uh, another one of the nuns. And uh, they were discovered and she was punished heavily for it. And uh, this is Paul Verhoeven's film. And it, uh, it stars uh, Virginia Efira as Sister Benedetta and Charlotte Rampling is in it. And Daphne Patakia is in it as well. Uh, they play kind of the three main characters. And uh, I really didn't know what to expect from Benedetta. Uh, and I went into it. And I absolutely adored it. It was fantastic. It's uh, it's so melodramatic and over the top and it's camp in how ridiculous it is. Um, it's kind of poking fun at the, the hypocrisy and the patriarchal nature of, uh, you know, the Catholic Church and even more so at that time, at the, in that time period uh, in France. It's it's so over the top and dramatic and melodramatic that it's it just works so well. The performances are so... Again, it's just all dialed to 11. The performances are at 11. There's screaming. It's almost comedic at times because uh, it's so over the top, but it's still very dramatic and it's very emotional. Uh, there are some scenes that are very difficult to watch, some uh, torture scenes, um, but I honestly loved it. It had a brilliant screenplay. Uh, the direction was fantastic. The cinematography was fantastic as well. And, um, you know, it's not particularly a technical, technically flawless but I have to say, and this may shock you, the last time I felt this way about a film in terms of just the way that I love it was Spencer. I haven't loved a film oh, in wow. this way since Spencer. It really blew me away how just much I loved it. It's it's so good. It doesn't have the technical backing of Spencer because I think everything in Spencer is a 10 out of 10. I don't think that everything in Benedetta is a 10 out of 10. It does have some flaws. It does have some weaknesses. But the last time that I just loved a film completely regardless of anything in this way... Uh, was Spencer. It's so fantastic and, you know, it, it's a brilliant film. To and, and in a way, it did remind me of Spencer because Spencer, you know, is criticising the nature of something that's so respected and important as the royal family. And this is poking fun and, and you know, criticising something that's so respected and so important as the Catholic Church. Um, and they both do it in very, very different ways, but also very similar ways because they're both very melodramatic. You know, uh, in Spencer, it's all very, um, you know, Kristen Stewart has hallucinations of everything. And in this, um, you know, Sister Benedetta does have hallucinations of Jesus. Jesus. And even the scenes with Jesus, he doesn't, it's not how you'd expect Jesus to depicted to be depicted in a film about nuns. He's kind of this hot shirtless man. Um, you know, it looks like it's it's in a perfume advert. Uh, you know, he's in a, in a field and his hair's blowing in the wind and he's this hot shirtless man. Uh, and she's kind of pining over him. Um, and, and, you know, this subplot that they're lesbians um, is, is such a, a powerful plot. I mean, she 
you know, they fell in love and they were they were having sex and they were having lesbian sex, which was even worse in the eyes of the Catholic Church at the time. And, um, you know, it, it's such a, a brilliant film. Um, and I, I did absolutely just love it. And I'm really sad that you've not been able to see it because I would have loved to have heard, heard your thoughts on it. Um, so to answer your question that you asked me, yes, absolutely. It is worth buying on physical media and watching it as soon as you can. If you can find it, find to see it in the cinema. It's fantastic. It, it really is amazing yeah well i did not expect that um well firstly i you know i had a vague idea of what the film was um and it sounded pretty bonkers anyway and then your description makes it sound even more bonkers um but i did not expect that kind of reaction so that that's very interesting actually um that that's that's very impassioned so i will be trying to get i will definitely go out my way to see it whether it be when it comes out on physical media or if i can try and see it in the cinema because it's actually getting the 4k treatment a lot of kind of smaller films never get released on 4k yeah um we'd love a 4k spencer cut please um yes. but yeah it's better that it's getting a 4k release so uh, i might have to give that a try when it comes out or uh, or whatever Okay, yeah. that's wow. That's that's pretty damn high praise. I'm uh, I'm slightly surprised. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily your thing, uh, but to be fair, I I wouldn't have guessed that Spencer was your thing either. So uh, maybe you will love it just as much as I do. Um, but yeah, like I say, it doesn't have the technical backing that Spencer has. Um, it does. It's not quite as flawless as that. But it's just the way in which I loved it. Um, yeah, I ju- I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. I was obsessed with it. I was thinking earlier when we were talking about what you watched and what you talked about Spencer, and then now, and I was thinking it's actually impressive how much we managed to shoehorn in Spencer. Like how many episodes <laughs> Spencer has been mentioned over the course of the podcast. I mean, it, it must be like the the record for any film being mentioned. I think I've probably mentioned it more than Blade Runner. Um, yeah. Wow, yeah. That's, that's why I rewatched Spencer, um, because I watched Benedetta and I was like, I, the last time I loved the film that much was Spencer. Yeah. So I, I ended up going home and rewatching Spencer, wow. which I couldn't tell you when I was watching Spencer. Um, but yeah, I really loved uh, Benedetta, yeah. Well, I'd say, um, yeah, I'd say uh, you held that information from me for a few days. That must have been uh, kind of trying to jump out of you there. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, wow. That's uh that that was strong. So, what rating would be inclined to give Benedetta out of ten? Uh, well, I I'm really conflicted because I did love it enough to just give it a ten out of ten. Um, you know, I gave it five stars on Letterbox, but it, it's probably a nine out of ten. Um, so I'm gonna give it a nine out of ten, yeah, or a nine and a half. I'm gonna give it a nine and a half out of ten. And who do you thought the man of the match? I think I'm gonna go for. That is a difficult one, but I think I'm gonna go for Virginia Efira, who played Sister Benedetta because she deals with the um the over the top dramatics of it so well she takes it so far that it works within the context of the film but she doesn't take it too far where it's just you know laughably ridiculous um and she deals with the dramatic scenes excellently as well um so yeah to uh virginia fira uh, for her portrayal of uh, sister benedetta but charlotte rampling was fantastic as well charlotte rampling had a really complex character and she did really well okay wow um so now we'll move on to the, the main event of the evening, um, the unbearable weight of massive talent. Now, of course, as I mentioned earlier, as everyone's aware, Nicholas Page is playing Nick Cage. Uh, this is a film directed by Tom Gormican, written by himself and Kevin Etten, uh, and stars a, a fictionalised version of Nicholas Cage uh, taking up an offer to earn a quick million bucks by going to uh, Spain to a rich Nicolas Cage fan's birthday. Uh, and whilst he's there, uh, he he finds out that perhaps he may have uh, dealings with the criminal underworld uh, that require the FBI to get involved or, or CIA. Um, and and Nicolas Cage has to go undercover. Uh, his his uh, friend, fan, slash criminal is played by Pedro Pascal of Mandalorian fame. Um, and and I think this is a film that I had personally had uh, an awful lot of uh, excitement for going into. Uh, the trailer looked great, um, so you know we'll, I guess we'll see if it lived up to that. Aside from the main two, it also stars um, Tiffany Haddish, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, and uh, a new kind of uh, emerging talent in um, Lily Sheen who is the uh, daughter of, of Kate Beckinsale and, and Martin Sheen, who plays um, the daughter of 
uh, Nicolas Cage, who's a central character to the plot. Um, the film has kind of gone viral for its uh, its usage of, of Paddington Two as a kind of uh, connector between the, the you know the the character Pascal and uh, and Cage. Uh, they kind of find a shared love in in Paddington Two, uh, which is why we started the podcast off with uh, with Paddington. I didn't want to trick people with thinking we're doing a Paddington review, but I thought it was uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was necessary. Um, so. This comes at a time where Nicolas Cage has been recently reappraised, I feel. I think that the, the, the love... It's a little bit like that kind of era when Keanu Reeves suddenly became like everybody's favourite actor. Um, there's a lot of love for Cage. He's come out and talked a lot about um, you know, why he's done the films he has recently, where his kind of head's at, what films he wants to do. And I think a lot of people look back and said, you know, have actually said, you know, he's actually an excellent actor. A lot of praise for some of the more cheesy films he's done, but also a lot of praise for his kind of acclaimed works. Uh, and I think people kind of generally talking about how, you know, I, I think it's fair to say I, I don't think anyone has ever seen a performance where Nicolas Cage reigned it in. I don't think I've ever seen him give less than, than that, the cliched 110%. Um, and I guess we debated that, so I guess I'll go first on this one. So, The Unbearable of Tassel Talent. Um, Again, yeah. So I came with this on, on that same wave as everyone else. I, I was, I mean, I, I love Nicolas Cage, and, and I, you know, I think he's a, he's, a, he's a wonderful bloke, and and he's very, you know, I, I'm very like the way he's quite self-deprecative, and this film is is kind of just a, a kind of big trophy of self-deprecation. Um, but I really wanted to to enjoy it more. I really appreciate what it was trying to do, and I, I think it's a wonderful kind of uh, museum piece for for the time for for how we think about Cage. And I think it's nice that he manages to get his praise. Um, but at the end of the day, it is a film that I found simply not funny enough, not new enough, not interesting enough. But survives on the on the coattails of the relationship between Pascal and Nicolas Cage. I mean the the, the buddy kind of cop the, the buddy cop the the, the buddy uh, nature that the, the the bromance of this film is inseparable is unstoppable inseparable their their chemistry is is absolutely on point. Um, but I just don't think the film you know matches that in, in its quality. Uh, I found you know there's a review I saw on Letterboxd that someone had given that said like yeah, do you know that thing where you don't laugh out loud you just kind of breathe out for your nose this is that for, for two hours. And I kind of found that way. I, I thought that, you know, there was an, a few interesting gags here and there, a few funny gags here and there, but generally just kind of a, like a, oh, I understand what that is. I understand what they're getting at. Mm, that's that's funny. Uh, but, you know, I, I came and I was a little disappointed to be completely honest. Um, you know, I think that, you know, we as kind of film nerds, we're the first people to, to point at Marvel and say, They've gone for cameos, cameos. People just want references. People just want cameos. Um, but then this film is exactly the same, except for for the chin stroke and pretentious people going, "Oh, I've I've seen Doctor Caligari. Oh, Paddington Two's great. Oh, um, oh yeah, I remember that scene in Face. Oh, look, it's the you know it's the Wild at Heart version of 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 Nicolas Cage. Oh, you know, and I think like you know I think that's hypocritical in a way. You know, like I don't necessarily have a problem with either of them in the in using the right way, and it's nice to have that those moments. But when they didn't, when they weren't particularly fresh, when they weren't particularly new, it just felt almost like they were just kind of. Um, kind of blackmailing your emotions into going, oh, I remember that. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think there are really enjoyable parts of this. I mean, there are parts of this that are really, really fun. A lot of that kind of the action stuff is actually really well made uh, and kind of mimics the the Nicolas Cage work that they're kind of referencing. But in general, I, mean, I, I kind of expect this to be kind of laugh out loud funny. I expect this to kind of, uh, you know, be like a, a real, like out there, bold celebration of just how wonderful Nicolas Cage can be. But at the end of the day, I just felt like you almost could replace this with any actor with a decent back catalogue at times. Uh, you know, again, the chemistry is wonderful, but, you know, I mean, I just felt myself a little disappointed. Uh, yeah, I kind of feel the same way, to be honest. I, I saw the first trailer for it, and I'd seen it a lot, and I thought that it looked amazing, and I was really intrigued by it. And then the second trailer came out, and that was the trailer that revealed there was this subplot that Pedro Pascal's character was like a a criminal that Nicolas Cage needed to catch working with the, the CIA or whatever. And I thought, oh, that's a bit less exciting. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about the film. Um, I loved the first like half an hour of this film. I think the scenes when uh, Nick Cage arrives on uh, yeah. the island yeah, and they, they're kind of just geeking out over each other and, and they're talking about films. And I thought that was really funny and I did really enjoy that. But then once he got involved with this CIA subplot, 
I do agree. It kind of just became quite generic, and I feel like it could have been any actor in those scenes. Um, I, I, but I did. I loved those early scenes so much, where it's just Pedro Pascal and Nick Cage talking about their favorite films, just geeking out and having a laugh. Um, a few of those scenes are really, really great. Um, the scene when the scene that everyone talks about when they Pedro Pascal reveals that his three favorite films are Doctor Caligari, um, Paddy, um face off and then he says Paddington 2 and Nick Cage is like really Paddington 2 and then they watch it that really reminded me of when I told you that my favorite film one of my favorite films ever is the Lego Batman movie yeah. and your first reaction was like what the fuck the Lego yeah. Batman movie and then you watched it and you loved it and it's great um whether or not it's one of your favorite films ever probably not but um, the joke doesn't really work because the whole point is that they're massive film nerds but everybody in the film community loves Paddington 2. This isn't a niche film. Everybody thinks it's great. It's like the highest rated film on Rotten Tomatoes ever. It's like in the Letterbox Top 250. It's like in the IMDb Top 50. It's like constantly praised. So I don't know the idea that, oh, I'm such an expert on film, Mr. Nicolas Cage. I'm such an expert on film. I, I love Caligari. I love all these things. Um, but also I haven't heard that like one of the most acclaimed films of the recent last few years is good. Like that joke kind of falls, and that's like with one of the big backbones that you reuse that joke a few times. So I, mean, I know it's a nitpick, but like that's the thing everyone's talking about. But like everybody likes Paddington too. That's the point. Well, yeah, that is the point. But I think the thing is that when people hear that, you know, if you've not seen it, if you've not heard about it, when you first hear that Paddington 2 is one of the highest rated films of all time on Rotten Tomatoes, on Letterboxd and Metacritic, your initial reaction is, what the fuck? A Paddington film is like has better critic ratings than The Godfather, than Goodfellas, than Citizen Kane, than all of these films. of or Every film that's ever been on Rotten Tomatoes, Paddington 2 is the best, according to but that. If this film that's insane. If this film establishes anything, it's that Nicolas Cage is a cinephile. So we should that establish that <laughs> this is the one thing. It, but you know, I, I, you know, it, 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 I think it does have those moments where, like, it, it, it is. Of course, we all have that thing inside us where, when he's talking about Doctor Cal- Dr. Caligari, you know, I do kind of feel myself kind of Leonardo DiCaprioing and pointing at the screen and going, yeah. oh, "I've seen that film. I love that film." Um, but you know, does it mean for good content? I'm not sure. Yeah, it definitely falls off after that. After the, um, there are a few good scenes, like the scene when they take LSD. I thought that was pretty good. And like I say, the action was pretty good. But you know, this was marketed as like the most Nick Cage film ever, and um, it just isn't. He, you know, he doesn't really have any scenes where he's doing like Nick Cage dialed to eleven. I mean, he's giving it his everything. Um, but I kind of expected more from it and wanted more from it. Um, you know, I wanted more of the first half an hour. Um, the the rest of it just didn't really do it for me. It just felt very kind of meh, you know, like an average action film for the second half. Um, so, yeah, I just wish they'd have reined it in and made it a much smaller scale and just had Pedro Pascal and, um, and Nick Cage vibing on an island for an hour and a half. I think that would have been a far better film. It's because they have that meta-narrative. There's a kind of a meta-narrative that runs through the second act of the film that is about them writing the script to their own film, right? Yeah. So I guess that's a kind of gent- slight spoiler, but they're kind of talking about writing their own script, and and they kind of discuss, and they're kind of building up, and the idea is that this is reflecting real life, and this is reflecting the actual situation. If you want a um, a film, a meta-film about writing the script of the very film you're watching that stars Neil Patrick Harris, go watch The Matrix Resurrections. Don't watch this. Um, and you know, there were times where it was like, uh, you know, it's almost, it was like pointing fun at the absurdity of the current thing you're watching, yet you still had to then sit through that absurdity for the next half hour. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's good, not great. I, I do have, I don't, I don't hate the film, um, but I, I think the, the positives, everyone says the positives are Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal, and I think everyone's saying that only as the the relationship, the thing. But the you know, the other two positives are. Nicolas Cage on his own and Pedro Pascal on his own because Nicolas Cage is very very good at playing Nicolas Cage I think you know (laughs) I've heard that he turned down this script three or four times when it was first posted to him um, and and he had to be really coerced in and then once he talked to a personal director he changed his mind I'm happy he did because I I kind of I like that I I like that he knows that we like him this much you know that's one thing I think is positive you know we all love Cage um you have to be a damn sick man to not like Nicolas Cage. Because yeah. um, he does get a lot of hate. A lot of people kind of dismiss him as a an awful, over-the-top actor. But he's really not. He's, he's amazing. And I'm happy that this film kind of 
uh, is for those people that are most people that just love Nick Cage and love what he does. Because he is, at points, a bit absurd and a bit over the top. And I think oh, yeah. one of the funny things is that some of the films that the film, this film, The Unbearable Weight, talks about are some of his kind of more hammy performances. I'm not going to go through the details, but you, you know, if anyone's seen it, we know what um, Pedro Pascal talks about him and his dad's relationship and the film they share. You know, the film that is discussed there is obviously one of those performances that is a bit more ridiculous, and that's the idea that you know that he that someone could take some positives out of a film, you know, performance that is seen as so bad. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think that he Nicolas Cage, of course, has done a, a decent amount of comedy work. You know, um, you know, one of his most critically acclaimed works. You know, he was a big part of uh, Into the Spider Verse. Uh, that came out a few oh, yeah. years ago. Uh, you know, he played the Spider-Man Noir there, and he, you know, wonderful comedic voice acting performance. I think you know Cage, obviously, normally, especially famous for for his work as as a drama and action, and then action star. Uh, I think he he does some really good comedy stuff. A lot of the stuff that involves makeup later on in the film, uh, really well done from him uh, on that part. But uh, I mean, uh, you know, I can see why he did this film. I can see what what it's supposed to be, uh, and you know, but ultimately, it. it, it all the jokes are okay, and that's the problem. Everything in it is just okay. Um, it's a celebration, but it doesn't go past surface level, I feel. Um, you know, we all love Nicolas Cage, so there are positives. Yeah, it's it's very it's kind of like an inoffensive average action film for the most part. And um but it does have interesting action, so it's still got enough to keep me interested. Um so I still I still very much enjoyed it. Yeah, I think goes beyond it means it means a point. Um but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it's still worth a watch, especially for anyone that is a fan of the cage himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't think this is this was particularly revolutionary. This, this uh, being John Malkovich, this is not when it comes to you know people playing themselves and, and kind of you know taking the piss out of yourself. Um, but you know, I'm happy it exists. I will put it that way. Um, yeah. And in a way, you know, this is a film about writing the scripts for a different film. In a way, it's very similar to Mank. Yeah, of course. Yeah, bringing that back to the Mank comparison, which I think we need to bring up in most films, actually. I think you could probably narrowly connect, or thematically connect Mank to most pieces of work. Definitely. Uh, That's yeah. the second time we've mentioned Mank today. It is the second time we've mentioned Mank today. We should uh, mention it more. Yeah. Citizen Kane and the fictional story that Pedro Pascal writes in this film are, of course, um, you know, aren't necessarily you know, one and the same, but uh, <laughs> I think that the, the, uh, the principle is still there. Uh, have you got anything else you want to say about this film? Uh, no, not particularly. I think we've kind of covered everything. I think Lily Sheen is, uh, you know, even though she may be a nepotism baby, um, I think that, that, you know, I've obviously not seen her before. I don't think anyone's really seen her before. Uh, and, and I think she's really good uh, as well as uh, as Nicolas Cage's daughter. I think that she was, she was one of the, the, the good better performances of the film. Uh, there are a couple of performances here that are a little bit uh, off. I'm not going to name names. Uh, Tiffany Haddish. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, in general, uh, you know, the acting was of a decent level. Um, but yeah, my, my how how would you rate this celebration of all things Nick? I kind of give it, um, you know, at the time I enjoyed it a lot more than I I think I I'm giving it credit for now. Um, but I think I'm going to give it a seven out of ten. It's a very kind of average film that I had. It had its highlights, it had its lowlights, um, and then it was quite average. So I think I'm going to give it a seven. A seven seems quite high rating for for that review. Personally, I think you've given yeah. it, you you hated on it and then given it a seven. I mean, not outright hate because it has got funny moments. Oh, I think I'm going to give it a little lower. I'm going to give it a six myself. Fair enough. That's that's understandable. Uh, I feel like um, we can't even pick man the match here. Like, I feel like we have a contractual yeah. obligation in yeah. a way to pick Pedro Pascal. <laughs> but um, tush. Hilarious. My man the match is Nicolas Cage. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's Nick Cage in a film where he's playing Nick Cage and it's about Nick Cage. How could it not be Nick Cage? Um... So I mentioned it briefly in passing. Nick, Neil Patrick Harris plays um, his uh, assist, his agent here. Um, who 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 is Neil Patrick Harris' agent, man? Like he's in this film for like a solid two <laughs> minutes. It was like I feel like, and he really works. I think he was, re- you know, he's really good in what he's in. Um, who? Why is he? I feel like recently I've seen him in a few of these kind of bit part roles in in, in bigger films, little kind of jokes here and there. Of course, he was in the Matrix, and he, he was. A lot. It was actually one of the best things about that, The Matrix, and I wish that he got more screen time there. But uh, you know, I, we need to see more Neil Patrick Harris. I think. I think him being relegated to the sidelines, uh, you know, it's a it's a big shame. Um, just I'd mention that. Um, <laughs> so, man, the matches both go to to, to Nicolas Cage. Nice, yeah. nice stuff. Okay, so um, that pretty much wraps up today. 
Uh, a bit of a shorter episode compared to our usual one, which so was the Northman actually. So maybe this is just showing a trend. Well, I said yeah. that the Godfather was two hours and twenty minutes. Um, that was three films though. That is true. Uh, that is true, and they're famously quite long films. Yeah. Um, so uh, what we do? What's next episode? Downton Abbey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't think. I can't, oh wait, no. The next episode is going to be Doctor Strange. And the Multiverse of Madness. Yeah. The Multiverse of Madness. How exciting. How exciting. Docky Strange. Do- When's that come out? It comes out on Thursday, the 5th of May in the UK. Oh, really? Okay. Which so... is the day before it gets released everywhere else, I believe. Why do we get them earlier in England? Because we are we're better. <laughs> yeah. We got Endgame two days earlier, didn't we? Yeah. And we got Spider-Man with No Way Home like five days early, I think. Nah, surely not. We got on Wednesday, we got on Friday. Oh, right. So it's two days then. Yeah, that's a big difference. Uh, that is weird, especially because one is Marvel and one is is distributed by Sony. So it's actually weird that both of those go earlier in the UK. Yeah. How how obscure? How how strange? Eh. How strange. How strange. Strange in the multiverse of madness. I haven't seen uh, Moonlight, by the way. I forgot to mention that. I yeah, haven't seen this episode of Moonlight, so I'm not doing my usual weekly review. But I'll wrap them both up next week because I think it will be the. F- I think this is the the second to last, and the next episode is the last. Um, which right now in my current mindset, I think that seems so abrupt because it seems so unfinished. But if you know if those last two episodes can do it well, you know, fair play to them. But you know, obviously, so far I am loving Moon at Night. Okay, um, well, thank you very much for listening to this very um, kind of a milestone episode of the podcast in a way for being the first live app. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, guys, uh, and uh, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, we're not we're not doing the bye yet. I thought I was just. Uh, kind of, I know that's why I, I, yeah, I, I got confused. I though. thought you just say like a an apartment thing. So so, oh, so, okay. so 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 If you're still here, guys. If you're still here, <laughs> guys. Yeah. Follow me on Twitter, please. Sam H Media uh, and Lewis at Lewis JWR and the podcast at Now Showing Pod. You can find us on Letterbox at Sam Houston and LJWR respectively. We are proud to be members of the Music City Driver Network. You can find their website or them on Twitter at MCDIPod. They host a whole host of articles and podcasts about the likes of music, movies, and sports. And you can, if you're a big fan of the podcast, you can help us out by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, sorry, or on Spotify uh, and help us get in the right, up in the rankings. But the best thing you can do is tell all your friends, tell your postman, tell your neighbours, tell everyone you know about the National Podcast because that helps us get traction. Thank you very much and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. We'll see you next time in the multiverse.